This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. So two weeks ago, uh, I preached from Exodus 17, uh, 8 through 17, which, as you'll recall, is the story of the Israelites being attacked uh, by Amalek. And the Amalekites, um, as you may remember, they were desert pirates, okay? The, these were uh, uh, nomads, no permanent home uh, of their own. So they lived by attacking civilizations in and around uh, the desert, and they lived by attacking travelers uh, who would go through the desert. And so in our sermon two weeks ago, we spent the entire time uh, talking about holy war. Now, holy war uh, is not a term you're going to find in the Bible, Uh, It is a term, though, that we can use to describe uh, the biblical God's repeated practice of not just defending his people and not just fighting for his people, but fighting his enemy through his people. So in Exodus 17, God made a promise. He said, I'm going to wipe out the the evil Amalekites. And he does it. And as you follow that uh, storyline through the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see that over time he does, in fact, wipe out the Amalekites, and he does it through the Israelites. He does it through his people. So, so two weeks ago, we spent a lot of time thinking about how our lives are similar and yet radically different uh, from the Israelites' uh, lives in Exodus 17. So, so back to our sermon this morning. I said something like the following. I can't remember exactly what I said, but uh, it was something like this when we were thinking about similarities and differences between our lives now as the New Testament church and their lives uh, then as the nation of, of Israel. I said something like, while we as God's people are still engaged in a war with evil, and, and while our enemy is still stronger than we are in and of ourselves, our battle now is not played out on a physical plane. It's spiritual. And I said, our enemy is not a human being, but we fight with spiritual beings and forces. Now that's alarming, okay? You you hear that right there. You hear our fight is not with people, but we wrestle with demons and the devil, uh, spiritual beings who have aligned themselves in opposition to God, okay? So when when, when I wrote that and I decided to say that, I I realized we're going to need an entire sermon at least uh, on the war that we're in now and how we fight in that war. So I told you two weeks ago, that this sermon was coming because this is not necessarily part two. It's kind of a spinoff. I mean, how do you tell someone you're in a battle with the prince of darkness and not tell them anything more? So our text this morning is Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. It is the biblical place to start when having the conversation, when beginning to understand spiritual warfare. And so with that said, please stand. We'll, We'll pray together and we will hear God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, pour out upon us wisdom and understanding that being taught by you and Holy Scripture, our minds and hearts may be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So if the devil is who our battle is with, let's answer four questions from Ephesians 6. They told me that last time's sermon was my shortest sermon on record. So just out of fairness to you guys, I feel like I should put my longest on record up there this week. So last time was two points, this time four, all right? Four questions. When does he fight? How does he fight? How do we fight? And when do we fight? Okay, when, how, how, when. All right, first, you're going to want your uh, uh, insert out wherever they've put the text this week, whether it's in the insert or the folder. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 a lot. All right, when does he fight? And by, by the way, I'll just say this at the beginning. A lot of what we know about the, uh, so on, the, the quote, uh, schemes of the devil, verse 11, a lot of what we know about the schemes of the devil uh, is inferred uh, from what we're told to do in the fight. So in other words, in, lar- in large measure, what we know of the devil's strategies are, we know it because of what we're commanded to do. All right, I think that'll become more obvious here in a moment. So when does the devil fight or attack? So from one perspective, it's true to say that we're always at war, and, and it's true to say that, that Satan is always uh, opposed to us and his minions are upon us. So to one degree or another, we're always at war, we're always under attack. But, but Paul uh, seems to assume and indicate in our passage that there are various levels of intensity to Satan's attack. So if you look, for example, Paul commands us in verse 18, keep alert. He's saying stay awake spiritually. That assumes that there are times when we are at war and that there are times where we're not necessarily under direct attack. Or if you look at verse 11 and verse 13, we're told, put on the armor of God so that you'll be able to stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, so that you'll be empowered to withstand future tense in the evil day. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this. If if you're a believer, you're always at a state of war with Satan, but the intensity of his attacks on you ebb and flow through the seasons of your life. If you also just kind of look at this text from a bird's eye view, you're going to see that Paul speaks of four types of war, four different stages uh, in a battle when talking about our conflict with Satan. So first, verse 18, I've already mentioned it. There's the stay alert, the keep awake, uh, look out for an attacked phase. Uh, The next stage would be uh, verse 16. This is the stage of war that that would have been long distance fighting in Paul's day and age. He, He says flaming darts verse 16. That's a really weak translation. All right. That makes you think of a little blow dart with um, a tranquilizer on the end of it. Uh, It's at least flaming arrow. It might be flaming missile. The most literal translations say missile. So it's not a self-guided, self-propelled missile. That's within the last couple of decades. But it's something larger than an arrow being launched from a long distance 
away. Third, though, then Paul alludes to -to hand-to-hand combat, uh, where you have deadly weapons, so swords and breastplates and helmets, etc. Finally, uh, Paul alludes to wrestling in verse 12. So the word for wrestling in Roman culture was most often used of athletes who fought naked. So so these athletes would start out facing each other, and their entire goal was to get the other pinned to the ground with their hands around their neck, symbolizing, I could snuff you out if I wanted to. And, And so wrestling, this word for wrestling, is also used to speak of the most intimate, if you will, stages of war where weapons are gone and all that remains is grappling and the goal of choking out the enemy. We don't grapple with flesh and blood. It's not a human trying to choke you. So when does the devil fight? The answer is always. But at the same time, to varying degrees of intensity. There are times when the devil is watching you, waiting for you to fall asleep. Stay awake. There are times when the devil and demons are so intensely fighting you and attacking you, uh, their hands are around your neck. Now, if you've walked with Jesus for some time, or uh, if you've fought with Satan for a while, you know exactly what I mean when I say that. So if that's when the devil fights, how does he fight? All right, how? Second question. The Bible as a whole is going to teach that the devil fights against us. He seeks to hurt us and devour us and destroy us in a variety of ways that I cannot mention this morning. But our text, Ephesians 6, emphasizes his primary and his predominant means of attack. The evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of the dominion of darkness, has two most frequently used names in the Bible, Satan and devil. The most frequently used name for Satan is devil. Paul calls him that in our text. It's from the Greek word uh, diabolos, diabolos, and it means liar. How does he fight? He lies. Liar, slanderer, false accuser, malicious gossip. The primary way Satan attacks you is through lying to you. The enemy is most powerful when you're oblivious to him. He's not only deceptive in what he says to you and his message to your heart, he's also deceptive about his presence in your ear. He doesn't introduce himself and say, my name's devil, could we have a talk? He just starts talking. We're gonna get to it in a moment in detail, but for now, if you just look down at verse 14, look at the foundational piece of armor that we're called to put on, the belt of truth. How does he fight? Lies, deception, darkness. How do we fight? Truth, reality, light. So I'm going to give you three categories for, for, for the devil's lies. And I think you're going to see these three sort of work them, themselves out in the rest of the sermon. The devil's going to lie to you about God's goodness, about God's grace, and about God's glory. So first, Satan lies to us about God's goodness when he tempts us. He lies to us about God's goodness in temptation. When Satan tempts us to sin, when he wants us to violate God's laws and directions, he's going to tell us that God's not good. When does he first show up in the Bible? When does the devil make his first appearance in the Bible? Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, Garden of Eden. He comes up to Eve and his goal is to get her to eat the forbidden uh, fruit. His goal is to get her to disobey the command of God. But what does he do? Does he possess her? 
Does he, let's say the fruit's an apple, does he smush up an apple and try and shove it down her throat? No, he just strikes up a conversation. Hey, what y'all doing here? And Eve's like, well, you know, we can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if we do eat it, we're gonna die. What does Satan say? You will not surely die. That's a lie. And then he goes on. He just tries to attack God's goodness in Eve's heart. He says, God knows that when you eat of it, you won't die, but your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Essentially, he's saying this. God doesn't want you to have what's ultimately best for you. He's not good. Nothing's going to happen to you if you disobey your parents as long as they don't know. Nobody's really going to get hurt by that. Nothing's going to happen to you if you're, you're not really going to be hurt in any way if you sort of mentally or physically have sex outside of marriage. God just, he just says that because he doesn't want you to have as much fun as everybody else. You can't rest one day a week. Your competitors aren't resting. If they're working, you're going to fall behind. You're going to get beat and you're going to be homeless before you know it. You can't trust God. In terms of temptation, he slanders God's goodness. In terms of accusation, he slanders God's grace. Satan says, oh my, now you've done it. You see, on the one side, he'll tempt us by saying sin is no big deal. But then on the other side, once we sin, he'll come after us and he'll make sin a bigger deal than it is. He doesn't uh, stay on one side of the conversation. He's by definition a liar. He goes wherever he wants. He says, you did X again. So God's putting up with you. He doesn't really like you though. You did Y again. God is so pissed off at you right now. Shame, 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 shame. You better do something good to get on God's good side again. You've got a lot of work to do here. You've done it now. You've crossed the line. You've proven yet again. You're not even a believer. You're not even a Christian. A Christian, a real Christian, wouldn't do that. Third, the devil lies about God's glory and God's power, and and he tries to to, to drive us to the point of despair. You may be a Christian, but you'll never be a good one. You'll never stop doing X or Y. He he says to us, the rest of your life, you're going to be a liar and a cheat and a person with no self-control. And when it comes to food and sex and spending, you're completely out of control. Some people may be strong enough to get up early and read their Bible, but not you. You're too weak. And so essentially, in slandering God's power and slandering God's glory, Satan says, God can forgive you, but he cannot change you. How does he fight? He lies. He slanders God's goodness, God's grace, and God's glory. If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, if you fought with Satan for a while, you know exactly what I mean. Now, I'm gonna use a word here someone else used that's much smarter than me, and I'm not smart enough to come up with it on my own, but I'm too dumb to not use it. That's what I'm doing right here. I realize I'm speaking phenomenologically this morning. The, the topic sort of demands it. To speak phenomenologically is to speak experientially more than normal. When someone speaks phenomenologically, they know that unless the listener has experienced what they're talking about, the listener cannot fully understand. Therefore, if you're seeking, 
if you're studying Christianity, if you're exploring the gospel, if you're a newer Christian, if you're a recent convert, you might be hearing this and a lot of it is lost on you. You might say, does the devil actually speak to you? And can you actually hear him audibly? No, it's spiritual. It doesn't register in physical ears. When, when speaking phenomenologically, I can say that dirty SOB, he whispered this in my ear again, and the experienced believer nods their head and says, I know exactly what you mean. I don't know what else to do other than to say I must continue on in this fashion because this is exactly how Paul speaks in Ephesians 6. But I would say this, if you are investigating Christianity, first, I'm super glad you're here. That's why I stopped to talk to you for a second. Second, if this phenomenological teaching is making sense to you, if it is like deep calling to deep, if this is resonating with you, that tells me as an elder of Jesus's church that he's working on you. I would say to you, cheer up, be encouraged. The gracious God who died you so that he could have you is working on you. That's fantastic news. Next, when does the devil fight? Okay, at various levels of intensity, at different seasons of life. How does he fight? He lies about God. Uh, So then how do we fight? I I think Ephesians 6 is going to tell us three things about how to fight the devil. First, we fight by standing and facing, the first part of the, the text. Second, we stand by putting on the armor of God, the middle section of the text. Third, uh, the end of the text tells us how to put on the armor of God so that we can stand. Okay, so first, we fight by standing and facing the enemy. Stand against, verse 11. Withstand, verse 13. Stand firm, verse 13. Stand, verse 14. It feels like Paul's trying to say something. So, so in other places in the Bible, the, we, we are told to take the war to Uh, the dominion of darkness. We are told to advance the kingdom. So for example, when you love your enemy or when you become an agent of mercy and justice, or for example, like in our text, I think it's verses 19 and 20. uh, in, In that, Paul talks about evangelism. He talks about proclaiming the gospel. That is when the Christian goes on the attack so to speak, okay? But, but, but with that said, the emphasis of our passage is what to do when you're being attacked. And Paul just says, stand. So so scholars have pointed out uh, that if you put all the protection on listed in Ephesians 6, if you put all of the armor on, the only time you're defenseless, the only time that you're not protected is when you try and run and hide, is when you turn your back to Satan, your head, your chest, your loins, your shins, your feet, everything's protected, but not your back. So first, we fight by standing and facing. And so if we have to stand and face one more stronger than us in and of ourselves, how can we survive, let alone thrive? Paul says in verse 11, you're empowered to stand when you put on the armor of God. So let's think about the armor. It's delineated there in the middle of the passage. Let's think about how we fight. Verse 14, stand therefore. And it literally says, gird your loins with truth. So belt is a really bad translation, but I understand why our version chose belt. This is referring to the Roman soldier's foundational piece of armor. It is the first piece of armor they put on when ready to go to battle. The belt was, 
As soon as I say apron or slip, you're going to kind of lose it. But, but it's like an apron or a slip, except for it's leather and it protects their reproductive organs. So first, put on truth. Put on reality. So it's fascinating. The, the devil's name is liar. And think baseball. The Christian's cup is truth. All right? Because I don't like belt, I'm going to keep going back to cup, Okay? In the next five pieces of armor, Paul is going to give three more that you have to put on in order to defend yourself. Verse 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now think about this. Everything that we've been saying so far should begin to make more sense. Satan is going to try and pierce your heart by telling you that your identity is that of a sinner and that God can't stand you because of it. But Paul says, cover your vital organs by putting on the righteousness of God, which is yours in the gospel. So when Satan falsely accuses and he says you're an adulterer and you're a gossip and you're lazy, you're a sinner. When he accuses, he accuses falsely, not because we don't sin, but because he leaves out the second part of the truth. We are sinners. I am stubborn. I do lack self-control. I do lose my temper, but I'm righteous. I am not defined as a sinner in God's eyes anymore because Jesus, the righteous one, became a sinner for me. My core identity at my heart is not despicable sinner, but beautiful, righteous one, even though I still sin in despicable ways. Keep going. Verse 15. As shoes for your feet, readiness given by the gospel of peace. So readiness is the command that the, the Roman officer would yell out to his troops and the troops could not see because they were hiding behind large shields that I'll talk about here in a second. But the officer would yell out, ready, and telling them to dig in, lean forward, get ready for the blunt force impact of the enemy charge. And Paul's saying, put on your feet the peace you have with God so that when Satan says to you, he hates you. Your relationship with him is strained at best. There's enmity between you and God. Say no. No. The Prince of Peace, Jesus, the one who enjoyed perfect relationship with God forever, he became the enemy of God at the cross for me. I have peace with God. He likes me. He loves me. He's for me. Huge thing to remember in this text. You're not at war with God. You're at war with the devil. And Paul says, pick up the peace you have with God and fight the devil in that reality. Go to verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. So so when Satan takes the flail, I had to look this up because I wanted to know what the name was for that chain uh, with a ball at the end with spikes on it. It's called a flail. And people sell them on eBay. <laughs> it's sad. Of course, they put warnings on it. This is just for a presentation only, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So when he picks up the flail and he goes after your noggin and he says, you're powerless against sin. You need the helmet 
of salvation. We, we haven't been studying Ephesians, so some of this is going to be lost. But the reality is, is when Paul talks about salvation, uh, some of the time he's talking about forgiveness in the past, some of the time he's talking about heaven in the future, more often than not in Ephesians, he's talking about the mighty resurrection power of God right now in you to change you. And so when he says, put on the helmet of salvation, he's saying, you've got to tell Satan, I can be changed and I am being changed. We say to Satan, I, I, I don't have to change for God to love me, but because he loves me, I'm being changed. Look at 16. So while the truth cup is first and foundational, uh, this one is most vital. He says in all circumstances, so in the older translations, it says above all, take up the shield of faith. So the first three you had to put on, this one you have to pick up. It will extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so Paul is, again, referring to the most crucial and vital piece of armor to the Roman soldier. Uh, it was two foot uh, by five foot. It was two uh, slabs of plywood uh, fastened together, double thick, wrapped in really thick leather, put in water overnight, taken into battle, and it could absorb and quench anything, even the most feared fiery missile. And Paul is saying, above all, you are righteous, but you have to believe it to stand. You are at peace with God, but you have to believe it to not be knocked over. You are being saved, but in order to stand now, you have to have faith. Above all, pick up the shield of faith. So that's how you stand. Everything the devil throws at you is absorbed in the armor of God. All the lies about God's goodness and God's grace and God's glory, they're absorbed and quenched in the truths of the gospel. So you can see it's pretty crucial to put on the armor. Third, how do you do that? Again, three ways. It's like seven sermons. I've got like three ways for everything. The, the longest commentary on this passage is 1,200 pages. It's by a guy in the 17th century. If you want to know about it, it's fantastic. I'll be glad to send it to you. You read it and tell me all about it. <laughs> so three ways. End of verse 17. This is the three ways uh, that you put on the armor of God. And we talk about it so extensively around here. I'm just going to list them quickly. Take up the sword, which is literally the dagger. So it's a knife. Take up the knife of the spirit, which is the word of God. Interestingly, the only piece of armor that is designed for attack is a dagger. And Paul's saying, know your Bible. Satan attacks, Satan lies. You absorb that lie with the truth and you counterattack. You stab back with the Bible. He says, you're not righteous. You can't be in God's presence. You block and stab. Nope. Truth is, I'm righteous in Jesus. And then you stab. You slash, you do whatever you can to hit him. He became sin who knew no sin so that I might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Romans 8. He has to forgive you because of Jesus, but he doesn't have to like you. Block and stab. Nope. Truth is, I'm cherished by the Father. We are God's beloved children now. 1 John 3, 2. 
He may forgive you and he may love you, but you never have any hope of getting better. Up, oh, lock and stab. Nope. Truth is, I'm getting better every day. I'm told in 2 Corinthians 3 that one degree of glory to the next every day, I'm getting better. Philippians 2, Paul says, you know what? The God who saves me is at work inside of me. He's changing me to want and to choose what he desires. Block and stab, block and stab, block and stab. Second, second way to put on the armor, verse 18, prayer. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Want to be stronger than your enemy who is by definition stronger than you when you're by yourself. Get in the presence of the one stronger than your enemy through prayer. I love the line of the song, at the name of Jesus, the enemy has to flee. You are done by yourself. You're more than a conqueror in Christ. Third, live in Christian community. Look at what Paul says at the end of verse 18. Pray for all the saints. And then it's almost like, he was like, oh yeah, I need prayer. He's like, verse 19 and 20, don't forget about me. I'm gonna need boldness to proclaim the gospel to the Roman emperor when, I, when I'm called to stand trial any day now. If the apostle Paul needs the prayer of others to stand firm when tempted to not proclaim the gospel boldly, don't you think we might need the prayers of community too? Now, that was all fast. We gotta keep going. There's one more question to ask and I think it might reinforce a lot of what we said. Last question, when do we fight? All right, again, from one perspective, the answer is obvious. Since we're always at war, we're always fighting. Okay, that's right, true. But then we think the second answer, oh, it's more nuanced, I'm smart. Here's the nuanced answer. We fight when attacked. When Satan increases the level of intensity, we have to do the same. Er, Wrong. At that point, it's too late. So I'm going to India again in a couple of weeks. When do I get my immunizations and vaccinations? Do I get the MMR, you know, the the measles, mumps, rubella? Do I I get the MMR uh, once I'm there and already under attack? Or do I get it now and, and put on the armor before I get there? All right, so think about it. I mentioned it already. I'm gonna go back to it. Verses 11, verse 13. Paul says, put on the armor of God so that you can stand in the increased evil day. I don't want to get too technical here, but I'm going to say a few things. Look at verse 14. He says, stand, that's a present command. Then he says, having fastened on the belt of truth, past tense. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, past tense. Having shod your feet with the gospel of peace, past tense. Again, I don't want to get too technical, but the only command that Paul gives for the present when being attacked besides stand is this. Pick up the shield of faith. In other words, you have to exercise faith when you're attacked. But if you wait until you're under attack to put on your breastplate and to put on your cup and to put on your boots and to put on your helmet, it is too late. Satan's got you by the throat and you say, dear Satan, would you mind pausing for a moment? I've got some really cool shin guards that I'd like to put on right now. And it would help me a bunch if you'd let me get geared up. When do you think folks knock on my door and look for spiritual guidance and help? When things are going well? 
or when things are dark and scary and hard and they're being choked. When am I, when when are you, when are we motivated to pick up the Bible and to pray and to live in community in interdependent, authentic ways? Intense temptation, intense accusation, when we're on the brink of despair. And the Bible is saying for that particular battle in the war, it's too late. Think about it. The Bible is an awfully big book filled with hundreds of nuanced gospel promises. It's a little late to get it up and read it when the fiery missile is coming at your head. Challenge. Go home this afternoon and just pray for an hour. Just an hour, that's all I'm asking for. Just see how hard that is. Yet we need to be able to pray at all times when attacked. When Satan has his hands around your neck and your oxygen is running low and you're not thinking straight, if you haven't lived in gospel community up until that point, there is no logical reason that a brother or a sister is going to come and stab him for you. It just doesn't work that way. How can you stand when the devil attacks? You put on the armor of God. How do you put on the armor of God? You read your Bible, you pray, and you live in community. When do you put on the armor of God? The best time is before the intense attack. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that this whole conversation is about a fight with the devil instead of the father. I praise you that this entire sermon is about uh, the war that we have with Satan that you have already won. I praise you that when Satan accuses us in the throne of God and says that we're sinners, you, you intercede for us, you advocate for us, you represent us. And you say, yep, they're sinners, but I died for them and gave them my righteousness. Jesus, I praise you that you... Um, have done all things necessary to save us. I praise you that when we get bloodied in this war, um, it is not uh, something that's happening to us by God because he hates us. I thank you that we know at the end we will overcome and we will be more than conquerors, that we will be home with you forever. Satan will be vanquished. You will be the obvious and eternal king. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would come and empower you would engage us in this battle that we would not only defend ourselves when attacked, but that we would join you in the triumphal procession of your kingdom. That we would march against darkness and evil and wickedness in a way uh, as those who have been saved by grace. Would you teach us how to hate Satan and hate evil, but love sinners like ourselves. We wanna be used by you in your glory and in your kingdom and in your cause. In your name we pray.